Welcome back to the podcast. In our last three episodes, we saw the English side of the story as they slowly began to colonize the northeast coast of what is now the United States. This episode is the sequel to the first episode in the season on the Wampanoag, as they were just before sustained English contact. Their ways of life, their religion, their political systems, their systems of agriculture, as could best be reconstructed from the sources that we have of them from just shortly afterwards. In other words, native accounts written down by English men. So we had to kind of sift through that filter a little bit. But now we're entering the historical period where things being written about the Wampanoag are being written in the time. And instead of talking about mythology or religion and gods they believed in, we're going to learn about actual people who existed. Some of them I alluded to in our last episode, Tisquantum. Um, we're going we're gonna to see Epinau again. We're going to see Samoset, who comes from up north. He's probably an Abenaki. And Usamequin. And hopefully I'll show you that the Wampanoag were an incredibly diverse and interesting people that had a various uh, spectrum of opinions concerning the English and other Europeans. And they were no, no, by no means this elementary version of the Wampanoag that we often leave students with, where, oh, they helped the pilgrims because they were nice. That's often the answer you get in elementary school, and then we kind of never come back to the Wampanoag again in general grade school education. And so you're left with this ignorant opinion that the Wampanoag were nice. That's why they helped the pilgrims. Too simple of an explanation. It's not true at all. And just to demonstrate the, the error there, it's like if I said to you, Japanese people are nice. Peruvian people are nice. American people are nice. It's too general, right? Some people are nice. Some people are not nice. Almost has nothing to do with your ethnicity. Lumping everything together like that, well, that's a stereotype. So if you say the Wampanoag are nice, well, that's a stereotype. And so this episode will contain the traditional Thanksgiving myth, the story of the Wampanoag and the pilgrims. But from the Wampanoag point of view of the years preceding and the years coming afterward, and honestly, the Thanksgiving meal was not that important to this story. So it'll come and go real quick. So you, you have to pay attention if you want to catch it. So if you listen to the last couple episodes, you'll know right away this idea that the Wampanoag were ignorant of Europeans and their devilish ways, or especially the English. This is all false. All of it. The Wampanoag had had uh, interactions with Europeans for a very long time by the time the pilgrims show up in late 1620. And we've gone through these things in 1602, Gosnold's colony. That was a group of Wampanoag to the extreme eastern section of the Wampanoag Confederacy or Paramount Chieftainship. We did a whole episode on that. 1605 in and around there, Champlain, who we learned about last season, shows up at Patuxet, which is the future site of Plymouth. And he spends a long time there. He, he interacts with the natives there. The Wampanoag get to know this Frenchman and his, his boat full of people quite well. Martin Pring in 1603 has some friendly and not so friendly interactions around Cape Cod. We know in the year 1614, as we covered in a previous episode, John Smith spent a lot of time with the Wampanoag going up and down the coast. He stopped at Patuxet. He names it Plymouth, actually. The pilgrims naming Plymouth Plymouth is a myth. That didn't happen. We know that the Dutch trader Adrian Block made a map and he labeled the Wampanoags. He called them the Wampanoags. Pretty close. And these are just the official narratives. So even by the year 1614, six years before the, the pilgrims show up, and they're not even called pilgrims, we know that they had contact with the French, with the Dutch, and with the English. This doesn't count the nameless other traders who came by and never left an account, never wanted to give away where they found furs or any other goods that the natives might have had to sell. But we know all these interactions weren't exactly peaceful. There were a number of Europeans who would steal Wampanoag off the coast, lure them onto boats to do trading and whatnot, which usually went well, but sometimes they would just take them captive and then sell them into slavery. 
usually on the Iberian Peninsula. We learned that Sir Ferdinando Gorgias actually had uh, sailors take natives for years, from 1603 on, I believe. We'll get to one in a little bit. But this began to sour relations, as you can imagine. It's likely in 1606, the Dumont expedition from our New France episodes last season, they had a fight with the Wampanoag. This convinces Dumont that there's no reason to relocate his settlement further south because the Wampanoag were so hostile to him, or rather his on-the-ground staff. A native account that an Englishman wrote down uh, from a native named Pecksuit describes killing an entire crew of Frenchmen under the guise of friendly trade, lured them to the shore, killed all of them, took their goods, and burned their ship. This would be sometime in the 1610s. Just from these examples, you can see that the interactions between the Wampanoag and various European traders off the coast and, and slavers uh, varied. There were good times, there were bad times. There were certain villages that were friendly to English, certain ones that certainly weren't, and for understandably good reasons. And so again, this explanation that the Wampanoag were uh, nice people, and that's why they welcomed the pilgrims. It's insufficient, right? There's already a hole in it. There's a couple holes I've already introduced. Now let's get more specific. So sometime in probably the 1610s, a man comes to power among the Wampanoag who probably inherited his paramount chieftainship, so his, his dominant command over most of the Wampanoag people, from his father, although he could have inherited from his brother. His name is Usamequin, or alternatively, Usamaquin. I actually like Usamaquin better. I'm going to go with it, and then someone's probably going to yell at me for it. I'm fine with that. Similar to their neighbor nation, the Narragansett, the Wampanoag had a, a confusing system to the modern, to the modern sentiments, where chiefs were the in charge of villages. Uh, it's argued by scholars whether or not they used a matrilineal or patrilineal system. Scholars say it was probably primarily patrilineal. Modern Wampanoag often argue that it was matrilineal. I don't need to get into the fray of it, but basically, each individual settlement, like Patuxet, which would be the future of Plymouth. They would have their own chief and their own chiefly family. There actually was a system of stratification. If you were from a chiefly family, there were just certain things you were able to do, uh, positions you were able to take, people you were able to marry. And being in that family was one ingredient. The other ingredient was the force of your personality, your abilities, and your willingness to uh, obtain goods and give them out. As such, his real power base was the chieftainship he inherited, the Poconokets. And in general, it seems like his power dwindled the further away from his home chieftainship, uh, his realm extended. And so if you go to the very end of Cape Cod, or out on Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket, his power seems to have been uh, less and less in terms of influence. And we'll see in later history that the natives there enjoyed greater and greater local autonomy. So this goes back a long way. And so he had this realm where he was very powerful towards his center, and then he seems to have gotten weaker in waves. But this was typical for the various Algonquian tribes along the East Coast to have a very similar system to this. And that's why they're often called confederacies. But in reality, a confederacy is a collection of relatively equal states or bodies that decide to come together for mutual defense, usually. But many of these Algonquian peoples, it does, doesn't really work out like that. And so I think David Silverman coined this term paramount chieftainship, where they are vaguely united in a confederate form, so it's loose, and they have a lot of local autonomy. But when push comes to shove, there is one chief who tends to be above the rest. For the Wampanoags in the 1610s, this would be Usamaquin. And based on the various friendly and unfriendly responses from the many different Wampanoag locales over the 1610s and even before that, you could see that there is no unified policy for Europeans. The localities, especially along the coast, 
have their own policies, their own opinions, and they're able to enact on those things because they have a certain amount of self-determination. In other words, Usamaquin was not an absolute ruler, and the intensity and geographical breadth of your rule was dependent on your force of personality and how you treated people. And you certainly weren't in any safe position because these chiefly families would marry one another. And so while your basis for being the paramount chief of the Wampanoag was dependent on you being chief of the Poconokets, well, you know, the chief in the town next door is your first cousin. And he's related to all the same people you are. These marriage alliances would extend even outside of the Wampanoag to the Narragansett and the Massachusetts. And so if you weren't a good person, if you upset a lot of people, if your reign was somehow muddied by your ill actions or strange desires, I guess you could say, your, your relatives, distant as they are, could make claim to your position. And if they were able to provide more gifts, more security, uh, more even just enthusiasm to their people than you, you could be ousted. It was not a secure position. And so always keep this in mind. Usemaquin is a politician, and he wants to maintain his position and guarantee that his children also get to enjoy those perks. So now let's turn to the story of Epinel, which I alluded to in our last episode. In the year 1611, the English captain Edward Harlow kidnaps five natives off the coast of what we would now call New England. At least three of them were believed to be Wampanoag. One was named Epinel, and they were given to Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous. Now, if we don't know who that is because you haven't listened to the last couple episodes, poo-poo on you. Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous was the commander at the Fort of Plymouth in merry old England. He was also an investor in the Popham Colony, and he was one of the leaders of the Virginia Company of Plymouth, the company that King James set up to settle what he called Northern Virginia. So basically, uh, the Northeast of the United States, New England, more or less, to be specific, and actually going all the way down to probably New Jersey, the sister company of the Virginia Company of London, which of course planted Jamestown, and you know that story. By the year 1611, Gorgeous had already taken on many natives from uh, what would be New England, and he would listen to them and teach them English, and he'd write down their stories and their tales and descriptions of the land that they were from. He was very interested in it. At this point, he was very interested in it because he thought he was somehow a ruler or leader or had some rights to that land, so that made it all the more enticing, the stories that would be told. Well, Epinal, Epinal became a little bit of a local celebrity because he became so personable. He was a bit of a uh, showman, so to speak, a P.T. Barnum. And while he did dazzle the people in Plymouth, he filled Ferdinando Gorgeous's mind with stories about gold mines. Gold. Oh, yeah, gold. You like gold? We got tons of this stuff. Yeah, I'll show you where it is. These are the exact same types of tales that fooled our Frenchmen in our last season. Uh, the natives found out very quickly that Europeans like gold, and then they could use the promise of gold to get them to bring them back home. So Epinalf just fills his head with this stuff, and eventually Gorgeous is like, we're going to go get that gold. Thank you, Epinalf. And as I told in our last episode, a couple years later, with this huge plan to make a colony and mine this gold on Martha's Vineyard, Gorgeous has ships bring Epinalf back. Right up to his village, the people row out to see him, they get on the boat, everyone's talking, and Epinal, speaking, speaking in his native language, tells all the natives on board exactly what the plan is for him to escape. But he's saying it with lovely hand gestures and a smile. He's making it sound like he's introducing the Englishmen to them. Of course, the natives know what, what's up. And then the very next day, when they're set to meet again, Epinal 
go scurrying to the end of the ship. He jumps overboard. The Englishmen catch him. They try to drag him back in. But the natives are out in their canoes and they send a hail of arrows in their direction. And Epinal leaps overboard and gets away. Let's just let that rest right there. So the next character we turn to is Tisquantum. Very similar story. Tisquantum was a native from the village of Patuxet, which would be the future site of Plymouth. You might know him better by the name the English give him, Squanto. When John Smith came to New England, he had a subordinate with him by the name of Thomas Hunt in command of his own ship. Now, when John Smith went back to Europe, he ordered Hunt to finish up his fishing activities and do the same. Hunt didn't do that. He went back to Patuxet, where they had visited previously, John Smith anyway, and had friendly relations, and used the guise of that friendship to lure natives onto his ship, and then, again, try to sell them into slavery. One of those poor unfortunate souls was Tisquantum, whom he and his fellow villagers, possibly family members, once lured on the ship, realized what was going on and tried to resist, only for huntsmen to fire on them, killing a bunch of them. Then Hunt threw the dead bodies overboard, shackled the rest. This is not the beginning that most people expect to Squanto's story, the man who's supposedly very friendly to the English. In Spain, Hunt tried to sell these natives, and he might have been able to sell a couple of them. But a local Roman priest was able to save some of them, including Tisquantum. From here, over time, he was able to communicate with uh, some official in the Catholic Church or local priest that where he came from, and they devised a way to possibly maybe get him back. Their plan was to send him to England, where somehow he lives in the house of a guy named John Slaney. This man has investments in Newfoundland. Now, it would be Slaney who taught him English. Now, Newfoundland is close to home, right? It's, it's close to what we would call modern-day Massachusetts today, more or less, but not so much back then. And the natives on Newfoundland, the, the Beothuk, who are notoriously reclusive, they spoke an Algonquian language, but it wasn't similar enough to Squanto's own native language to be understandable by him. But eventually, Slaney sends him to Newfoundland, and that's where he meets a man by the name of Captain Thomas Dermer. This is where the story really starts to pick up, but I'm not going to get to it because now I'm going to go to a side story just to get you upset, but you'll understand how it connects. Back to an earlier source we mentioned, the native Pexuit. In 1620, he gave an account how about four years before, 1616, the Wampanoag uh, found a shipwreck, killed many of the sailors, and enslaved two or three of them. They weren't really used as slaves, more like trophies. These Frenchmen, as exotic as they were, they were sent around the different Wampanoag villages. They were treated terribly. They were fed the same food as the dogs, and they weren't allowed to wear clothes. They were kept naked like animals. At least one died fairly quickly. This unnamed Frenchman who died apparently cursed the Wampanoag in such a fashion that they understood that this was a curse. And Pexuit, another Wampanoag, believed that what came afterward was a result of what the Frenchmen said. Today, we would think it'd be more likely just having contact with these Frenchmen that what ended up happening would be some of the most horrific plagues in history. Between those years, 1617, 18, 19, and the time that the Plymouth settlers show up, the Wampanoag landscape, and really much of the, the East Coast, uh, Northeast Coast, is completely rewritten by these plagues, wiping out entire villages. John, Smith, John Smith's map, made in the years 1614, published in 1616, the villages that existed on it were gone. All of them, basically all of them, were wiped away by these uh, waves of plague. Scientists today are still arguing over what exactly was was the, the contaminant that caused this massive, massive uh, amount of death. 
I would say decimate, which uh, in the very legal specific term means uh, one in 10 or to reduce by one tenth, or sometimes it means to reduce to one tenth. It was worse than decimation. Thomas Dermer, who we just introduced, would say one in 20. That's how bad it was. Imagine, imagine your group of friends, your neighborhood, your school, wherever. Imagine it being reduced 95% in population over the course of three years or so. Not only that, but you witness that 95% go. The traditional explanation is smallpox. It's usually always smallpox. That's an easy one to throw out there. But there are many other theories, including viral hepatitis. The natives, much like the European, didn't have any sort of germ theory yet, any idea of virology. And so, again, they blame curses. Some Wampanoag blame the relaxed worship of Kayatan, their traditional god who came far from the West, who taught them how to grow corn. The reason doesn't matter because it's just so horrifying. Uh, here's a quote from the historian Chandler Whipple. Thousands died until there were not enough left to bury the dead, and they were stacked upon one another. So there's the very real human toll of this, this plague or series of plagues. The political the political toll in Usemequin's mind, though, is that the Wampanoag were crushed. Their allies, the Massachusetts tribe, were crushed even more, reduced to nearly nothing, maybe a couple hundred members. However, their traditional enemy, the Narragansett, while having some losses, were not nearly as damaged, not nearly as reduced in population as the Wampanoag. So suddenly, all the chips are thrown up in the air. In the great political game of Algonquian rivalries, the Narragansett had suddenly pulled out an ace from their deck of cards. So now let's go back to the story of Tisquantum, a man who doesn't know any of this yet, although it will deeply affect him. He's in Newfoundland. He meets Thomas Dermer, who's a captain who works for Ferdinando Gorgias quite often. Tisquantum tells Dermer some amount of promising information that led Dermer to believe that Gorgias would be interested in funding another attempt at a colony. And so from Newfoundland, Tisquantum actually goes back to England, further away from home. However, with the promise of being delivered straight into Wampanoag territory. So, something on the horizon to look forward to. A small colony is planned that would involve two separate ships meeting up at an appointed time in, in, in and around Wampanoag territory. Thomas Dermer takes the northern route with Tisquantum. And trolling down the coast of what we would now call Maine, it must have already been obvious that something very bad has happened. Because of course, the, the plagues reached up toward the Abenaki, and probably Dermer noticed the difference before Tisquantum. Because even up in the territory of Maine, Tisquantum would be somewhat foreign, but Dermer would have maps, and those maps of the native villages wouldn't line up anymore. Suddenly, everything was different. Everyone was gone. Now put yourself in Tisquantum's shoes. You've been away from home a number of years. You've been back and forth. You've been enslaved. You've seen probably family members killed and thrown overboard. After all this time, you're triumphant. You're now in Wampanoag territory. You're landing at Patuxet. This is your hometown. And what you find is complete destruction. As some authors have said, bodies. Because after a while, there's no one left to bury the dead. Everything has been taken from you when you were taken from your home. And now you're back. And again, it has been taken from you. Sit with that for a little bit. This is when Dermer records his 1 in 20 statistic. Tisquantum, who has been gone for several years, knows that he needs to travel west to Poconoket, 
where Osemaquin is chief, locally, and paramount chief of the Wampanoag. I believe this would be one concrete proof that the Poconokets had been in that position of leadership, at least for a while, because Tisquantum knew exactly where to go. It's at this point that Dermer, probably not with Tisquantum, for unknown reasons, met up with Usemaquin, who showed up with 50 warriors. And Usemaquin told Dermer about the plagues, about the disease, the unknown thing that killed all these people. It wasn't war. It wasn't starvation. It was plague, as we would understand it, a curse or some sort of evil force, as both the Europeans and the natives at the time would have understood it. The interaction is cordial enough, and Usemaquin actually gives the very last French captive, remember, from that ship we talked about a little while ago, to Dermer to bring back to Europe, possibly in an attempt to rid themselves of the contaminant or the French curse. After this interaction, and realizing that the, the Wampanoag landscape has been completely rewritten, all the conditions are completely different than Tisquantum had outlined, Dermer goes back to Maine. The rendezvous with the second ship to make this colony never happened. So they regroup off a fishing station in Maine, perhaps Monhegan Island. The relationship between these two men is interesting because the normal narrative that you would expect would be that Tisquantum was some sort of slave or captive or servant to Dermer. It doesn't seem to be that way. They saw each other as equal parts in an enterprise, I believe. In Maine, they decide to go their separate ways from one another. Dermer, of course, would have business back in merry old England and Newfoundland. And Tisquantum decided, at this point, I'm going to try to make a living however I can. I'm in Maine, but I'm going to walk back to Wampanoag territory. He's captured along the way and eventually lands at the doorstep of Usemaquin, where Tisquantum is kept as a captive there among his own people, or near his own people, okay, because he's from the village of Patuxet, and these are Poconokets. But it's known that there were a few survivors of Patuxet, but they had removed themselves to Poconokit. Squantum lived as a captive to Usemaquin, probably because of his association with Europeans. He was suspect. Who knew where his loyalties lies? He'd been gone a long time, and there weren't very many people around who had any, who, who could pledge any degree to his loyalty or character, because his whole village was nearly wiped out. Let's leave his story there for a minute. Thomas Dermer, on the other hand, he decides to give it one more shot at finding that other boat, starting this colony. He ends up sailing south to Martha's Vineyard, the very end of Wampanoag territory. Here on the island, he knows at least one Wampanoag, a guy by the name of Epinau, who we already met. He had met him years ago in merry old England due to their, multi, uh, their mutual association with Sir Ferdinando Gorgias. And the year before this point in time, 1618, he had a friendly, pleasant interaction on Martha's Vineyard. Here in 1619, though, Thomas Dermer uh, is mortally injured by Epinal and his people. The rest of his crew are slaughtered. Dermer makes it back to his ship and makes it to Virginia, where he dies from his wounds. His log of all these events, of course, now being delivered to the English, combined with other reports from the English about the plagues in what would be New England, uh, one by Sir Richard Vines, who we heard in the last episode, the English were getting an idea that this land had been cleared, cleared away. John Smith's description described this beautiful place that would be great for English settlement, but it was full of people. Richard Vines described the land being depopulated and a pleasant winter he had a little further north from Wampanoag territory. Dermer describes cleared fields, 
that are no longer being used for crops because the people aren't alive anymore. Wonderful freshwater sources and a decent shoreline with nice navigable harbors. I believe I said that word right. We're going to come to learn about these English people more, not so much in this episode because it's about the Wampanoag. But in the charter for the Council for New England, this would be the governing body that will eventually sanction the Plymouth Settlement. King James, or one of his scribes at least, one of his representatives, refers to this plague that happened in the 1610s as a wonderful plague. And the later Puritans and the soon-to-be-met separatists saw this as God's divine hand clearing the land for his chosen people. The Wampanoag would be privy to none of this. That takes us right to the year 1620, where we're going to meet a group of separatists and some others who are on a boat called the Mayflower, who are mucking around Wampanoag territory for a little bit before they decided to settle at the abandoned village of Patuxet, whom John Smith called Plymouth. They were not yet called pilgrims, as we call them today, but I will refer to them as such because it'll make you comfortable. In this mucking around before the English settled down, the pilgrims settled down, they had dug up graves and found stores of corn and stole it to feed themselves. The Wampanoag watched wearily as this happened. They were in their winter habitations, so they were further inland from the shore than they would usually be in the middle of summer. Made the land appear even more abandoned, even more open to English use. So these pilgrims stealing the corn, it would make them look like savages digging up graves. Or, more sympathetically, just desperate for food, finding the corn. And when the English finally did settle down at Plymouth, the Wampanoag watched from a far distance. They didn't want to be noticed. They didn't make contact. This is now where we could turn to the actual written words of the pilgrims. William Bradford records that the Wampanoag shamans tried for three days performing ceremonies in the swamps in order to ward off the pilgrims before they even considered making contact. Wampanoag knew this was different than the normal English interactions. It's likely the Wampanoag had never seen an English child or an English woman. Now all of a sudden, at Plymouth, it's obvious families have shown up. Whatever they made of it wasn't good because they went to their swamps where they could commune with Cheapy, this spirit of the underworld. We would see him as a devil-like character in our modern imagination, but he had a more expanded role in the Wampanoag world. He was similar to a Hindu concept of a destroyer, perhaps, where he's an important part of the turnover of the world and not just an adversary for the good spirit. But when Cheapy did not turn these strange people away, it was time for Usemaquin to organize contact because these people were in his territory. It's a telling choice that he didn't send to Squantum in. The Squantum was his captive at the time, but he didn't trust him, especially around the English. Considering that the English have just mysteriously decided to settle into Squantum's old village was even more suspicious. Instead, he got an old chief that he knew well and knew well his loyalties from far up north among the Abenaki. It's believed among the Abenaki anyway. A man by the name of Samoset, you most certainly have heard of. He learned English, not as well as Tisquantum, but he knew uh, English pretty well from trading with the different sailors off of Monhegan Island. And Usamaquin considered the small little settlement of Plymouth to be so threatening that he sent away to get Samoset sent down to make first contact. Of course, very famously, when Samoset approaches Plymouth and greets them in English, the, the, the settlers are stunned. Now remember, not all Englishmen are created equal. These are not the same Englishmen who've been trading off the coast of what is now New England for possibly generations. 
These are religious dissidents, the core of them having lived in the Netherlands for quite a while, very far away from the uh, Abenaki world or the Wampanoag world. So while the Englishmen we learned about before this point in time would be like, yeah, of course they know a little English. Why wouldn't they? I know a little Wampanoag. These people were wholly ignorant of what was going on, and they took it again as another sign that God was showing favor onto them. Samoset was strong and tall, but he was older. He was by himself. wasn't terribly threatening, and he spoke English. So the people of Plymouth, they welcomed him. But let's keep looking at this from the native point of view. Samoset immediately began absorbing information, intelligence, about what was going on around him. He insisted on having a meal with the English before talking business. This would, uh, this is, again, a native custom, tends to be, although smoking tobacco would probably be more common. But it would also allow Samoset to absorb what do these people have, where have they been, depending on what kind of food they have, and also how much food do they have, another important consideration. He stays about five days, and over the course of that time, he tells the pilgrims that this place that they are now settled is the village of Patuxet that was wiped out by a great plague not too long ago. Again, he's not just sharing information, just to share information, just to be nice. He's informing the people, uh, the, the pilgrims, that they are interlopers, that they are in Wampanoag territory, and that this is a village called Patuxet, of which you are not members of. He stays about five days, and he doesn't really do very much. And it's clear now um, that he was just kind of taking in what was going on around him, because, of course, he's going to report it back to his friend, Husemaquin. Now, as he leaves, he says he's going to go back to the leader who sent him here, and that he will probably be replaced with another gentleman, somewhat younger than him. This is where Squanto, or Tisquantum, re-enters our story. Now, a lot of people think Squanto was the one who made first contact with the pilgrims. He's not. It was Samoset. Tisquantum, as a Wampanoag and a member of the Patuxet tribe, he shows up really as a prelude to having a meeting between these strangers and Usemaquin himself. This is like the President of the United States meeting a foreign dignitary or going to a foreign country. There are layers you have to go through before you get to the really important guy, Tisquantum being layer two. But it would be on March 16th, 1621, that these strangers, these pilgrims, would finally get to meet the great leader, Usemaquin. On that day, he appeared on top of a hill near Plymouth with 60 warriors. Threatening as that might be, the warriors, their faces were painted brightly, different colored in a celebratory fashion, indicating that there could be some good outcome of this interaction if the people of Plymouth play their cards right. They were in his territory, and so he didn't stoop to enter their settlement. He waited for someone to come out to him. The name that they would know him by was the name that everyone called him, which was not Usemaquin or Osemaquin. It was Massasoit, meaning great leader, great chief, the paramount chief. And it was only to his benefit that Usemaquin got these, this group of English people to refer to him as the Great Chief. In his mind, it probably demonstrated their subordination. During this historic moment, the natives, of course, brought tobacco. And the English, as far as they could understand it, returned the favor with alcohol. Similar use, at least in their eyes. Tobacco having a far more spiritual meaning for the natives. But both things used to lighten the mood before negotiations. The two parties exchanged people to ensure the safety of everybody. And over the course of that first meeting, they developed a treaty of sorts with seven provisions, the last of which proclaimed the friendship and alliance between the two groups of people. Later generations of people at Plymouth would try to abuse the meaning of this seventh tenet 
And it's unlikely, even though there was some overlap in the language and some uh, some people in between who could speak both languages, that both parties came away with the exact same meaning of what this treaty meant. But it was a treaty of peace and friendship that would last a generation. It was incredibly influential, incredibly important. And you know what? If you're a fan of grade school education, this was not Thanksgiving. This was before Thanksgiving. This was in March. No harvest came in yet. So that important moment between the natives and the English that established a peace that would be lasting for a generation just to be redundant, all of that happened before Thanksgiving. We tend to roll up the meaning of all these different interactions into the Thanksgiving holiday because that's myth-making, right? You just pile everything into one event. It's easier to remember, easier to celebrate. But Thanksgiving was an afterthought. And so now I return to my criticism at the beginning of this episode. Usemaquint, did he make a peace treaty with the English because he was nice and he wanted to help them? The historian Cormac O'Brien says that Usemaquin could just as easily have orchestrated their destruction. So why did he meet, make this deal? Was he just a nice guy? Well, let's go to another historian, uh, Charles C. Mann. The entire confederation was now smaller than one of its former communities. The truth is the Wampanoag were weakened compared to their neighbors, especially the Narragansett, to the point where, as Charles C. Mann says, the whole of Usemaquin's realm was now shrunken to the size of just one of his former communities. Again, Thomas Dermer, 1 in 20. The historian Charles C. Mann, once again, said that Usemaquin concluded that he possibly should ally with them compared to the Narragansett. They were the lesser of two evils. Yes, the Plymouth settlers, far fewer in number, mysterious with trade goods from far away, and most importantly, firearms, could be the ally they needed to effectively face down their traditional enemies, the Narragansett, who once again were not nearly as affected by the plagues as the Wampanoag. And to back up these historians, Usemaquin told the settlers at Plymouth that he wanted to use them and their firearms to at least scare the Narragansett. Usemaquin did not help the Plymouth settlers because he was nice. He had been dealt, and his people had been dealt the worst hand you could imagine, and he saw an opportunity. After this point, Usemaquin actually finds a purpose for Tisquantum. He already knows English, has some familiarity with the English people, and he is a resident of Patuxet, which is now Plymouth. So it only made sense that he would leave Tisquantum there. He would then be able to help his new ally and then also be his eyes and ears. For the pilgrims, of course, Tisquantum was a blessing, and he taught them how to plant native crops. Despite Usemaquin's friendship, it was very clear to the Plymouth settlers that some of the other natives in the area, some of the other natives who were supposedly under the control of the Wampanoag, were not terribly friendly to the people of Plymouth. This would include the Nauset people, who were very similar to the Wampanoag and often fell under the same general vague confederacy. They weren't fond of the English in general because of the past indiscretions uh, that have been going on for 20 years, where you have friendly traitors and then all of a sudden slavers. But also, as the Plymouth settlers, before they decided to actually settle at Plymouth, were hobnobbing around the Cape Cod area, were robbing graves and stealing corn and doing all sorts of despicable things, uh, the Cape Cod natives were not generally disposed towards the Plymouth settlers at this point in time. And so in the summer of 1621, a few men from Plymouth decided to travel out to the capital of the Wampanoag world, so to speak, the home of Usemaquin and the Poconoket people. These Englishmen who were guided by Tisquantum noticed right away the, um, the agriculture laying about the land. The, the land wasn't as wild as English writers had made New England seemed to be, or as virgin 
as uh, English writers seem to make it out to be. It had been inhabited by humans for some time. What they also noticed, however, was abandoned villages, the result of these plagues. So the land looked used but empty. It must have looked post-apocalyptic, to use a modern term. And perhaps it was this friction with the Cape Cod natives and the people of Plymouth that Usemequin was waiting to boil over, after all. Because when they got to his, his hometown, his village, Usemequin greeted them, and they of course greeted him with Massasoit, calling him great leader, which must have impressed everyone around him. They exchanged gifts, and he agreed to have the Cape Cod natives be friendlier to the Plymouth settlers. He was going to arrange a easing of tensions. But he was also quick to establish a trading relationship, which is often what the natives want and the Europeans want in these early transactions. Basically, all the English goods coming in through Plymouth would be traded through Usemequin to the rest of the Wampanoag and all the other native nations in the area. He would prove to be the go-between, which is exactly what he wanted. Again, part of being a Algonquian leader is your ability to uh, give gifts and supply people and sustain people through the hard times with things they would normally be able to get. So they greatly coveted this middleman position. We see this last season when we learned about Jacques Cartier and uh, him trying to go past the uh, St. Lawrence Iroquois village of Stadacona, or Stadacona, where the natives there did just about anything to keep him from going further and thereby bypassing uh, the trade relationship that they had set up. He also mentions to them that this trade relationship might actually hurt the trade relationship between the French and the Narragansett. Very smart guy, Usemequin knows that the English are, are enemies of the French, and his enemies are the Narragansett. So he's already setting up sides here, and he's making it very clear to the English that, hey, I'm your guy. The Poconokets were very impressed by gunfire. It was a new novel thing to them. It seemed to call upon the power of the sky and lightning and thunder. It had a magical component to it, even spiritual in some sense. And so anywhere these Plymouth men went, people wanted them to fire off guns into the air. It was just a fun thing to do. Usemequin also went around and gave great speeches with these Englishmen at his side. Of course, they had no, no idea what he was actually saying. But he was, again, using them as a, a sign of the power that he had, even having them sleep in his house. To the Wampanoag, there would be no outward sign that the English were in any way establish, establishing any sort of suzerainty or dominance over the Wampanoag people. It very much looked the other way around. This small group of English people had now become part of the greater Wampanoag world. And this all thanks to Usamaquin. But of course, many of the Wampanoag were scared of this new thing, as people are scared of new things. Another Wampanoag chief by the name of Corbitant used the English presence as an opportunity to consolidate power around himself, and therefore take a bid at becoming himself paramount chief, which of course would mean deposing uh, Usamaquin. Corbitant was the sachem of the Pocaset tribe, who were very close to the Poconokets. It's likely that he was of some fairly close relation to Osemequin, and it's likely that his wife held a similar position in the familial sense. And so Corbitant was actually very well placed for taking Osemequin out of his position of power. This all occurs in the late summer of 1621. One of his first moves was to enlist the Narragansett to kidnap all the go-betweens between Usemequin and the English. This includes Tisquantum, but also another native named Habamak, who was likely one of the Wampanoag medicine men. It almost worked, but Habamak escaped, and he made his way all the way to Plymouth, and he told the men there what had happened, and that it was likely that Tisquantum had already been killed. 
Now, a character we haven't met yet, but he's going to show up in many future episodes. Miles Standish, who is a man hired by the settlers at Plymouth to be their heavy, so to speak. He decides, well, we're going to go get to Squantum back. So Habamak and Miles Standish, they gather together a force and they go to where Habamak was being held to rescue Tisquantum and kill Corbitant if they were given the chance. When they arrived, Tisquantum was no longer there, but there were Wampanoag there, not Narragansett. The combined Wampanoag and Plymouth force took these Wampanoag rebels hostage and brought them back to Plymouth to hand over to Usemequin when the time was right. Returning to Plymouth, Miles Stanish declared that anyone who opposed Usemequin would be revenged upon by the English at Plymouth. And this short but effective show of force and the use of threats was enough to get Corbitant to show up at the negotiating table. Corbitant ultimately pledged loyalty to Usemequin. And in return, Usemequin agreed to a marriage contract where Corbitant's children would marry Usemequin's children, a well-known Algonquian tradition and European tradition of making your enemies into family. Corbidant, in theory, would now be the grandfather of the future paramount chief of the Wampanoag people. And maybe that's what he wanted all this time. It's very hard to tell what the exact motivations of these people were. But with the internal opposition, the strongest of which having been turned into familial relations, he now had firm control over his center. And by the end of the year, he was ex- able to extend his powers straight out through Cape Cod and fulfilled his promise to the Plymouth settlers to have the Cape Cod natives maintain friendly relations with them. Usemequin's having a pretty good year. One thing, though, is that in the paper version of this peace treaty between these two Wampanoag sachems that the Plymouth settlers insisted on writing up was that they would pledge loyalty to King James I. This would become important far later on in our timeline. But here we are in 1621. There's no way that Usemequin, who has these group of people calling him Great Chief, Massasoit, had any idea that he was pledging to be subservient to some distant king he never met. It's likely he understood it as a reciprocal friendship. And now we're coming up on the fall of 1621. The pilgrims have had a great year. So they decide to have a Thanksgiving. And it was really quite different than the other Thanksgivings that we would see in early New England. It was kind of a three-day rolling celebration of all their good fortunes. Whereas later, actual New England Thanksgivings tended to be very religious, dour. It was a day of thanking God and not so much celebrating your own bounty. And of course, as you probably know, the diet of the day was not the diet of today. Their Thanksgiving dinner did not resemble our own. It was probably mostly wild game and seafood. Believe it or not, the Plymouth settlers did not invite the Wampanoag. Usemequin just showed up, probably after hearing the uh, English fire off their guns. He showed up uninvited. The Plymouth settlers saw no reason or or way, really, to turn him away because he showed up with probably three times as many people as all of Plymouth. And it turned into a three-day rolling party. And that's about it. All the important things that happened between the settlers of Plymouth and the Wampanoag had already happened in relation to this Thanksgiving myth, this setting up of peaceful relations and the two cultures coexisting together. All that had already been established. The treaties had already been written. The Thanksgiving meal was just a thing that happened. And certainly the Plymouth uh, founders themselves would not have considered that meal any more important than the treaties they had already set up with the Wampanoag. And such a celebration would be short-lived. There were always new dangers coming up. Uh, November of 1621, the Narragansett chief, 
Canonicus, who we're going to learn about a lot, sent the people of Plymouth a bundle of arrows wrapped in a rattlesnake skin. Similar gestures we've seen throughout Native history and European history, where you send a, an item of war to someone as a symbol of, are we going to war or are we going to come to a peace with each other? Or just a symbol of, we are in a state of war. And that's what this was. This was saying, hey, the Narragansett are not happy with you people here. The subtext being that the Wampanoag had nearly fallen apart. And now they were being put back together with this new friendship and were as strong as ever. The Narragansett were upset that they had missed out on this opportunity to swallow up their neighbor. Tisquantum told Miles Standish what this meant. And Miles Standish was, was not the man to intimidate. So he poured a bunch of gunpowder on the arrows and he wrapped the bundle back up and he sent it back to Canonicus. Now unknown to the Plymouth settlers, gunpowder had an extra layer of fear among the natives. Because, again, there had been these great plagues. The natives were trying to figure out the cause. And as humans do, they look for causes and effects. One thing many of them had put together is the presence of Europeans tended to end up preceding a plague. And so there is your cause and your effect. Again, they don't have germ theory yet. No one does. And so what they put together is this, this powder, this gunpowder, that seemingly is magical in nature and able to make a huge noise and a huge spark, something that only the sky could before this point in time create. Well, this gunpowder is some magical, evil thing. And they began to associate it with Cheapy, that benevolent spirit associated with death. And of course, gunpowder used in a gun can cause death quite directly. They assumed that this powder somehow caused the plague. And so to send a bunch of powder to the Narragansett was a very strong and aggressive move. And to the Narragansett, this was probably a larger message they were sending out because they appeared to be in, be in some sort of war in this year, 1622 we're moving into, with the Wampanoag and specifically Usemequin, who the Narragansett kidnap when he is either released or gets away. He blames, of all people, Tisquantum. And that's the one guy in this story who's just been there all along, and we've never suspected of causing any of this friction. He seems to be a helpful person. But remember, Osemaquin never trusted Tisquantum, and he still doesn't, and he has reason for it. So just go with me for a minute here. By the year 1622, Tisquantum had taken the few Patuxet survivors that were living among the Poconokets, and he had made a small village near Plymouth, near the former village of Patuxet. And he had been slowly building a reputation as the person who could actually control the English. Supposedly, he would go to other villages and convince them that the English were intent on coming to them and attacking them for some made-up reason, only to later return and say he defused the situation, thus demonstrating that he ultimately was in control of what the English did, not Osemaquin. And he even tried to drive a wedge between the English and the Poconokets themselves. At one point, Tisquantum and his party claims that Osemaquin was intent on taking out the English. The English sent a runner down to Poconokit, and nothing's going on. Everyone's at ease. There's no war preparations. Tisquantum, suddenly, this man who's been in our story almost this entire episode, becomes a suspicious fellow, doesn't he? In May of 1622, Osemaquin finally had enough, and he travels to Plymouth, and he demands that Tisquantum be turned over to him. That Tisquantum was the author of all their woes and all the friction between their two peoples. Now the English come to Tisquantum's defense. This is all coming on quite suddenly for them. They have to think this over, and they, re they ultimately refuse to hand over Tisquantum. Osamakin then tries 
a different tact. And he delivers a bundle of beaver skins, which of course are quite valuable to the Europeans, along with a knife. A knife that would be used to kill Tisquantum. And he requests that the head and the hands of Tisquantum be sent to him, a common trophy that the natives of the Northeast would take, or heads and hands. To flesh out these accusations, ultimately, it's believed by many historians today that Tisquantum, in fostering this distrust and trying to break down everything between the Wampanoag, the English, the Narragansett, and back and forth, was that he wanted to become the distributor of all the English goods to the Wampanoag people and ultimately increase his prestige to a point where he might be able to challenge Osemaquin, much as Corbitant had, and in the very least be able to move up his lineage into a chiefly status or take the whole thing, become the new Massasoit. Ultimately, the people of Plymouth, they keep pushing off the issue, coming up for reasons why they still need to squant him, at least for a while, at least for his labor. Later in the year, they tell Osemaquin they can't return to squant them because we just spotted a strange European ship right off the coast. We don't know what's going on. We need all the men we, we, we have. For all we know, we might be on the defense. Now the passengers on that ship we'll learn about in our next episode. The people of Plymouth also tell Usemaquin that they intend to go up the coast and trade for furs outside of the Wampanoag territory. Again, Usemaquin doesn't like this. He wants to be the sole distributor of the English goods. He wants to be their point of contact, and he advises them against this. And so this was a setup for the rest of 1622 to be challenging for the pilgrims and, and for a cold relationship between the two groups. Osemaquin withdrew much of his support, grew quite distant from them, until Tisquantum, out on a fishing expedition with the English, suddenly becomes ill and very quickly, suspiciously quickly, dies. Poisoned by an agent of Osemaquin? Maybe. At this point, it's unknowable. But it did serve to benefit Osamaquin, whose association with English only made him stronger up until this point. In fact, the Narragansett had been known to direct their attention now not to the Wampanoag, but to their neighbor in the other direction, the Pequot. The consequences of these interactions would be uh, reverberating through time to this very day. Unlike the Pequot, the Wampanoag had metal weapons given to them by the English, and instead of being a likely target of absorption, they were a formidable neighbor that deserved respect. And so moving into the year 1623, relations have to warm again. Something is going to happen that's going to bring these two parties back together. Well, there's another English settlement we're going to learn about, founded in 1622, that settled a little further north of Plymouth. And they didn't have such good relations with the natives in the area, the very small Massachusetts tribe, longtime allies of the Wampanoag. The people of Plymouth began hearing from the natives that the sachems of the Wampanoag were being inundated by the sachems of the Massachusetts tribe. Literally, they'd be showing up in the Wampanoag villages, stirring up support for a general war against the English on account of the actions done by the English in this new colony. This would be quite alarming to Plymouth. Very few people live in Plymouth, and if the natives decided to wipe them out, as long as they could get over their fear of guns, they'd be able to do it very quickly. Minutes, probably minutes. A general uprising of the Wampanoag, the Massachusetts tribe, the Narragansett, just those three nations could take out Plymouth in minutes. To investigate these rumors, Edward Winslow of Plymouth decided to travel to the Poconocets and discover the truth of the matter. When he arrives there, he discovers that the Poconocets are all suffering from some sort of disease. 
and Usamaquin himself is near death, Edward immediately took on the role of a nurse, and he started giving bedside care to Usamaquin and everyone else in his village. And then nearby villages were sending their sick in to see Edward. He began to take the status of a pawpaw, of a medicine man among the Wampanoag. This reignited the friendly relations between the English and the Wampanoag. Usamaquin leaned over to Edward Winslow when he was feeling better, and he told him that yes, these rumors were true. The Massachusetts tribe were intending to take the English off the continent, and that they were very much trying to recruit the Narragansett to help them. Winslow brings back this information to Plymouth, and Miles Standish, again, a man who's never going to back down from a challenge, he gathers a very small force and travels north to the Massachusetts tribe. The details of his exploits will be in our next episode, but he commits an act so sudden and heinous that they had to fight their way all the way back to Plymouth, but nonetheless established that they were not a group to be messed with, and therefore neither was Osamaquin. The historian David Silverman suspects that Osamaquin's strategy was to have the English attack the Massachusetts as a show of force to scare his own people into ignoring the offers of the Narragansett. And certainly, these actions in the year 1623 show that uh, the English are working for Usamaquin, right? They go and nurse him and his people back to health. They go and they handle the tricky situations just outside his borders, and they scare away the Narragansett. Additionally, the English scare the Wampanoag themselves and the related group, the Nossets, that Osamaquin has come to control in a greater and greater amounts. It's known that after this attack on the Massachusetts tribe, the, many of the natives on Cape Cod went to living in swamps. That was the common place to go if you were in danger in the Wampanoag world. It was a place of sanctuary, a good place to hide if you knew how to get around. And who in the Wampanoag world could deliver them from these swamps? Osamaquin. Of course. I'm a great ally of the English. They just saved me from a great sickness. They do my bidding. They trade with me. Don't go about living in swamps. They won't attack you. I have control of them. And you know what? In the year 1623, he does. He knows how to manipulate them. He's been doing it for some time now. By 1624, the Plymouth settlers had set up a trading post right in his home village. There would be no new Tisquantum setting up a go-between. Additionally, there would be no more easy challenges to his authority, inside or outside. Just to sum it up, it's 1624. The English are calling him a great chief. Tisquantum, his internal enemy, is dead. Corbatant has been made in-law the faraway reaches of his realm, the end of Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, all the natives there are firmly under his control, still enjoying some local autonomy, as is their right. Externally, the fading Massachusetts tribe has been unloaded by Osamaquin for his new English allies, and the effect of all of this is that the Wampanoag's greatest enemy up to this point, the Narragansett, were no longer looking in his direction, but were looking towards the Pequot as the target of their desires. Again, it's 1624. In this area of southern New England, by the on-the-ground reality of the situation, is not an English possession. This is Osamaquin's world. <laughs> 